Hello, everyone. Welcome to our new episode of One Vision Podcast. Today, we have Alex joining me and Brad. Alex is the marketing director of FICO. So, Alex, for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. But tell us a little bit about you and your career and what you're doing um, at FICO right now and how it relates to financial services today. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, I got my start actually at a cloud-based fintech infrastructure company. Um, this was before literally any of the words I just used to describe it were in common use. So uh, it was a little bit of a challenge back in the day to do marketing, but it's been interesting to kind of see the evolution uh, since then. And, um, you know, really gotten to be either uh, in or around the fintech sector. Um, since then, spent a little time as an analyst at Mercator Advisory Group and, uh, like I said, I'm now a um, marketing director at FICO, where I focus on sort of researching and understanding where the fintech industry is going. And in terms, Alex, of you know, sort of what you do and how it relates to um, the data involved with financial uh, services and sort of looking at your career, are involved in a lot of different things that really are looking at um, creditworthiness and you know just the sort of evolution of how we, we look at data and a lot of what you are sharing and writing uh, has to do with sort of where that's headed. So can you talk a little bit about maybe alternative data that's being used to look at either credit assessment or new business models that are being created around that data? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the business model point is the really the key one because I think historically in the financial services space, we've done a good job kind of mining all of the sort of traditionally available data, but as, you know, analytic capabilities increase and we're, we're in the age of AI and machine learning now, um, I, I don't think that a lot of banks have fully sort of realized what that means for their business. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, in the age of AI and machine learning, you know, to put it really simply, the best algorithm wins, right? And so in order to develop the best algorithm, you have to start thinking very differently about uh, data, alternative data, uh, customer behavioral data, and really, to your point about business models, sort of reorienting your entire business around generating more of that data. Um, and I think this is a difficult concept for you know, banks to really wrap their heads around because, you know, they're still at the point where they're trying to get a handle on all of the data that they already have and sort of sort through their big data problem. And so the idea of actively going out of your way to try to add to that problem and to bring more data in houses, I think not, not a natural thing that occurs to a lot of folks, but, you know, what we see at FICO is that, you know, AI and machine learning are really going to be the future of how a lot of these decisions are made and whatever the end game is for the experience that we want to offer in financial services, let's just say it's self-driving finance, you know, we know that AI is going to need to be a component to enable that. And in order to develop that algorithm, you're going to need a lot of data to train that algorithm. And so reorienting your business to generate more of that proprietary data that you can use to build those algorithms and keep them updated, I think is going to be a huge competitive dynamic moving forward. And I think the faster that, you know, banks and other companies realize that that's, that's really what the game is today, um, the more advantage they're going to have in building towards those sort of end game experiences that we're all talking about. 
Do you think that you know banks have been hesitant um, because of privacy laws, because of the regulations, because we we are seeing you know fintech selling data for hedge funds to analyze how people are spending money, or we're mm-hmm. seeing you know fintechs kind of mash together data to help understand how they could extend uh, credit to businesses and the like. Uh, do, you, do you do you think that banks are simply behind because of this idea of regulation? I mean, what do you think is holding them back? Yeah, I think the regulation is definitely a big component of it, right? And you know, this is when you study different um, the same industry across different regions, you start to notice these differences, right? And so we see a very big difference between the U.S. versus Europe versus um, you know countries in Asia like China or India in terms of how the data is being used. So I definitely think fear of regulation or just restriction on regulations is a big component to this. I also think it is a technical challenge just in the way that a lot of, um, you know, legacy banks are organized. Um, You know, data tends to sit in silos and a lot of times the data that sits in those silos is uh, owned by different groups that don't always have natural incentives to work together. So I think that's the other thing that we see as a big difference between banks and fintechs is just that, you know, fintechs by virtue of being newer and having kind of a more simplified organizational structure, they don't have to overcome those same challenges and they can move fast. And then as I've written about in previous newsletters, they also are more uh, okay with the idea of breaking things as they move fast. And banks and other established firms from a regulatory perspective are obviously much more cautious about that. I like what you just said too about um, you know how the not just the different regulations but also you know the the physical infrastructures of how financial services are set up in in here versus um, let's say the Far East because we're always drooling over what what they're doing over there and we're always wondering you know when will we ever catch up with that um, so we might circle back back with that um, and have some follow ups on it but continuing the the trend. Um, that we're seeing something different in Asia versus what's impacting here in the U.S. Let's go back to some of the work that you did, Imikator, um, when you did mm-hmm. the research on credit cards and other forms of consumer credit. We can go on and on and on about, you know, how consumers are being extended credit differently and how they're using it. But from your perspective, what are some of the most important trends that you've seen in the U.S. and, and how, did, how is that happening in, in other markets such as Asia? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, the biggest thing I took away from my time at Mercator studying the, the U.S. credit card market was just that, you know, at a high level, credit cards are kind of a victim of their own success, right? And what I mean by that is, obviously, they're enormously profitable for banks that offer them. And because of that, I think there's been less of a need to bring innovation to that space. And, you know, for, for a specific example, I spent a little while studying the premium credit card space. And so these are the the cards that cost merchants the most and have the best rewards for consumers. And they also come with a whole bunch of extra benefits, right? Things like uh, extended warranty protection, travel assistance, that kind of stuff. And what I found when I looked into it is that most consumers really can't name any of those extra benefits, right? You know about your rewards, you maybe know about a couple of the other key features of the card, but most of them, you know, you couldn't actually ask a consumer to list off travel protection, extended warranty, all of these other things. 
And I, I had a really hard time understanding that at first, but what I figured out eventually is that that's by design, right? Issuers offer those benefits, but they really have no intention of cardholders actually taking advantage of them. And the way that I know that is because a lot of issuers used to offer a price protection benefit. So it was just one of those throwaway benefits that was offered. And you could submit a receipt for a purchase that you made with the card. And then if you found a, a different price that was lower afterwards, you could submit that receipt and get a refund on the difference in price. So it's kind of a cool benefit, but no one ever used it. And the reason no one ever used it is it was time intensive, it was difficult. And then and this is a recurring trend that happens in the fintech space, some fintechs came along and offered apps that automated that price protection benefit. So instead of having to automatic, instead of having to manually, you know, code up the receipt, load it in and submit it to your bank, this app would do that all automatically. And what happened after they did that, unsurprisingly, is a lot of people started using this benefit and most issuers either cut that benefit entirely or capped it so that it wasn't as valuable to customers as it originally was. And, you know, the reality is customer-centric companies that banks either admire or fear, so this is Amazon, Apple, companies like that, they don't treat customer loyalty programs like that, right? If you think of Amazon, Amazon wants you to use every single perk associated with Amazon Prime because they know that the more engaged you are with Amazon Prime, the more locked in you are to their ecosystem, right? I mean, they, a couple of years ago, spent half a billion dollars just for the rights to make a TV show based on the Lord of the Rings, which they're going to give away for free to all of their prime members, right? That's how they think about locking customers into their ecosystem for the next 50 years. And when you compare that to credit cards and that product and the loyalty structure that's been built around that in the United States, you know, the thinking is medieval by comparison. And so, you know, I think circling back to your question about how we should think about credit cards and kind of revolving credit here versus other parts of the world, I think the easiest way to think about it is if you were designing a revolving credit and customer loyalty product today from scratch, it would not look anything like a three inch by two inch plastic card that comes with a set of benefits that no one would use, right? And in China, that's not what it looks like. It looks like a uh, Alipay app that has an embedded revolving credit capability that you can use whenever you want with a huge network of loyalty benefits built into it. And so I think that's kind of illustrative of the difference between the two, and it also indicates how much catching up we have to do to other parts of the world in order to offer that kind of experience. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. You remind me of something. Um, a lot of credit cards, they have these offers, right? Amax have their Amax offers and Chase have their own stuff too. But mm -hmm. what I find really, really cumbersome is that every time when you're going out, let's say to a restaurant or to, to a particular store, a retail, retailer per se, I always have to go in and check the card and see, okay, you know, am I eligible for this? Am I not eligible for this? And I think it brings mm -hmm. home what you were saying is, we just don't always have an idea and banks don't make it easy for you, for you to use them either, right? And so mm -hmm. if you really want me to use it, don't throw in like five different layers I have to constantly look for, right? It's a balance between are you offering the value that you really want to offer for your consumers or are you just doing it as a lip service just to look like you're doing something? Right, so absolutely. And I, I think, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true. I think the 
the looking like you're doing something without actually doing something is is a trend that you see over and over in the U.S. financial services industry where, you know, if you design a benefit for a customer, you should think about that in terms of how does that benefit engage our customer, create value for them, and extend the lifetime of our relationship with them. And that's absolutely how Amazon and Google and any number of other companies and other industries think about their customers is as a really valuable lifetime asset that they need to carefully cultivate. And, you know, too often in banking, we think about, you know, benefits to customers as simply a line item in a budget that we have to get an immediate return for. And if we can't get an immediate return, let's do everything we can to de-emphasize that so that we appear to get the credit for offering it without actually having to pay for its utilization at all. And I think that's a a really kind of pernicious problem that sits under the surface of a lot of these different products. I always like to say that, you know, if banks can't offer something to the equivalent of uh, Amazon Prime for $99 a year, then they shouldn't be in business. I just think, you know, there's so many programs, to your point, that uh, pretend to add value. And it's, it used to be much more than credit cards. I mean, I, I worked for almost a decade with this company that basically made money off of those type of benefits, whether it was insurance or travel protection or whatever it might be. And uh, that's not the, the way of the future. So, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, your take on future, the future. You, you write this great uh, newsletter, um, FinTech Takes, and, and newsletters. Uh, Theo and I talk an awful lot about them because um, it's, it's an, an important way to get your viewpoint out. Uh, and we love your newsletter, by the way. Everybody should go out and subscribe. FinTech Takes, because uh, Alex and his thoughts are something that you should be reading. Um, so, so that being said, a commercial for Alex. The, the, oh, thank you. What, one of the, the most recent ones that you wrote on was really fascinating, though. It's like you were exploring the Chinese fintech and banking landscape, and you called it a massive laboratory where innovative ideas can be tested out constantly. So as, as you looked into China, what were some of the sort of most surprising lessons um, that you kind of would take and kind of uh, share to the other markets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is a really fascinating market. And obviously, I'm a little late to the party in talking about this from a fintech perspective, but I, I enjoyed the process of digging into it and learning. And you, know, you see these just, you know, hugely impressive numbers around, you know, the number of you know customers that are using these super apps in China. And it's 900 million customers, which is, you know, three times the total number of people living in the United States. So it's just this really, really big scale where you can kind of start to tease out not only, you know, what's happening in you know, the U.S. or Europe today, but more importantly, kind of what can we expect moving forward? And one of the things I sort of had an epiphany on as I was doing all this research was that, you know, in the U.S. and Europe, I think there's oftentimes an attitude around digital within financial services of, you know, kind of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, right? So, you know, we need to offer uh, P2P uh, payment transfers. Um, okay, so let's push that rock up the hill. Okay, we have uh, Zelle all set up and now we're good and we don't need to worry about that. We've got that rock up the hill, it's going to stay there, we're in great shape. Or, you know, hey, we need to roll out this new mobile banking capability, so we're going to push that rock up the hill, we get it all the way up, it sits there, we're good. And what I realize in looking into other you know, markets that are a little bit ahead of us in China, I think is the premier example, is that you really can't have that attitude, right? There is no ceiling on customer convenience, 
right? And the way that I know that is when you look at China, you know, as we know, smartphones are the dominant payment mechanism in China now, which is a hugely impressive accomplishment. But what's interesting is that Alibaba and Tencent, they're not resting on their laurels in China, right? They're not saying, oh, we got everyone onto these smartphones. They're making payments. Everyone's happy. We're good. They're pushing things forward and they're, you know, taking a huge step forward in the terms of uh, offering facial recognition technology to do payments. And so both those companies are actively rolling out and um, sponsoring the implementation of technology that can be used to recognize someone's face and without having a mobile phone or anything on them, they can make payments with it. And there was a, a Wall Street Journal article that was written about this where they interviewed a 19-year-old college student named Wang uh, in China and asked him about his experience using this technology to you know, buy stuff on a vending machine on campus. And he said, and I'm quoting, it's super convenient. Because it works without a smartphone, you don't need to worry about your smartphone when the battery is low. And, you know, that's kind of a simple quote, but the thing that really stood out to me was that here's this 19-year-old in China who's talking about the advantage of facial recognition payments over mobile payments in the same way today that a U.S. consumer would talk about the benefit of a debit card over the benefit of writing a check, right? And so when you think about just like how much further ahead they are than us, I, I don't think it's necessarily a reason for pessimism, but I do think we need to shift our attitude from, okay, as soon as I get this rock up at the top of the hill, I can stop and take a break. We can't take a break. We have to keep continually pushing the rock up the hill, and we have to find a way within banks to incentivize that behavior and to make it something that we enjoy doing because there's always going to be an appetite for it. Yes, I, I cannot agree more. Although I, I think some part of me though, as much as I admire the progress a lot of these big tech companies have done in, in China and Southeast Asia, part of me still thinks that we need to be cognizant about what we're doing so that we're not leaving people behind, right? So we, we talk mm-hmm. a lot about, you know, digital, the, the, the disappearing of branches and how that might impact rural areas. Um, and there was an actually an interest, interesting study, um, I think we circulated on social media back and forth, was, you know, what will that do to financial health as well, right? From having a digital technology, we lose the pain of pain. We lose track of how much we're spending. But then on the other side, you know, could digital technology help us improve financial health by being able to track things using apps and using behavioral measures and, and all of those. So financial health is something I think all three of us, we, we do share um, the, the need that we need to focus more in the industry perspective. You did say in a recent post, and I have to agree, unfortunately, that, you know, while financial health has always made for a great 30 second ad, we won't really see any significant widespread investment in either financial health products or services until the banks can find ways that it will actually improve their bottom line, right? Improve their own portfolio mm-hmm. performance and profitability. It is unfortunate um, that it is where we are right now, as much as I think we can all agree that it is something important. So in your point of view, how can we actually fix it? Or is that even fixable? How, how can we align what consumers need versus what the banks are doing right now? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's a tough question too. You know, I think we, a lot of people in the industry really believe in financial health as a future strategy and imperative that's, that's critical for banks. But, you know, at the end of the day, the way they look at their business is around where's the business model for it? How do I generate revenue for it? And I think, you know, as much as it's important to start looking at lifetime customer value and measuring your performance by different metrics, I think another way to look at it just at a more strategic level is in terms of com competition and competitive trends. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about how banks are increasingly competing with tech companies, right? And in the U.S., that might not look exactly like it looks in China. Um, I think banks in the U.S. should hope that it doesn't look exactly like it looks like in China. And that's probably true for a number of reasons, including regulation. But to some degree or another, you're going to end up competing with companies outside of the financial services space including companies that have very large existing portfolios of customers where they're providing financial services, not as a core product, but as a ancillary product. And when you think about it from that perspective, you know, I think the question that banks need to ask themselves is how are they going to differentiate from those other companies? What's going to be their core differentiation? And, um, you know, as much as we were just talking about the value of continuing to focus on convenience and why it's imperative that you need to continue to make your services more convenient, I think the other reality that banks need to grapple with is you're probably never going to be as convenient in the services that you provide as some of these other companies, right? And if you take Apple Card as an example, it's an extraordinarily convenient product in terms of how you sign up for it, how you use it, how you get... Um, you know, reminders to make a payment. And one of the reasons it's so convenient is that it's embedded into iOS and the iPhone operating system at a level that banks just don't have the option to do, right? Because they don't provide that platform. And so I think if you believe that your future kind of competitive position is going to be solely determined by the convenience that you provide to consumers, you're going to be in a challenged position, right? And they go up against some of these other companies. Um, by contrast, I think if you look across other dimensions of competition, financial health starts to look kind of interesting because if you can help consumers understand their financial wellness and map out a essentially a lifetime journey for how they can improve that financial wellness for themselves and their entire household and their children, you start to put yourself in a very different position in terms of the value you're providing relative to these tech companies, right? I mean, I think a lot about Amazon in these conversations, but you know, at its very core, Amazon focuses on making it easier for you to spend money, right? And they're exceptionally good at that. But that's a very, very small and in fact, sometimes counterproductive part of financial services. A bigger part is how do you build wealth? How do you, you know, bring more people into the financial system? How do you ensure you know, wealth and prosperity going into old age and retirement? These are questions that Amazon and other tech companies probably will never consider uh, a real strategic imperative because that's just not the core of their business. It can be the core of banks' business. And so when I think about, you know, why should you focus on financial health? Isn't this really just a you know, thing we do for publicity? It's really more about your long-term competitive position in the market. And I think the more we talk about it from that perspective, the more it makes sense as a significant area of investment for banks.
you know, it's interesting. We, we talked about um, Apple Card and sort of the wish list of what we would like to see um, Kim Cook and crew sort of put onto that spend uh, in terms of optimization. And you bring up some really salient points for the things we talk about. Um, it, it seems to me that, you know, Amazon's best interest long term would actually be in the financial health of, of its consumers and the way that they spend. Um, because if you're making more money and saving more money and have more assets, then you would be a longer term customer. And Apple should be thinking along those lines with Goldman and banks should be thinking mm-hmm. along those lines. So I, I really love this conversation because again, it's, it's about broader thinking, about longer term thinking. It's about something where everybody wins. So along those lines and along sort of this passion that you really demonstrate about financial health, you're this proponent around financial education and financial wellness, and you're also a practitioner. You're involved in a program to educate high school students on the responsible use of credit, and I'm sure beyond. So tell us about what you're doing with Zoot. Yeah, so um, we started a financial education program uh, a while back that was focused on, um, you know, reaching high school, college-age kids uh, and teaching them about the, the U.S. credit system. And, you know, it's funny. A lot of people talk about financial literacy in sort of an abstract sense, but, you know, you should really try teaching it to bored 15-year-olds in a classroom because you get a very different perspective on what works and what doesn't work when you actually have tried to convey some of this information. And, you know, the two things that I've learned from that, you know, experience, the first one is there really is a huge appetite for it, right? I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, we have this assumption that sometimes people who don't manage their finances well are doing that because they've made a fully informed choice and decided to to go down that path. And I think a lot of times it's more because they don't have the right tools or the right information than it is they don't have the right desire. And that was reflected in all of the experiences I had teaching high school students about credit. They all had a real passion for learning it because they knew it was going to be the key to unlocking opportunities for them later in life. And so there's a huge, huge appetite for it. But the other thing I learned when I was trying to explain it, and you really have to know something extremely well in order to explain it to someone else. And I thought I understood a lot of these kind of core concepts around credit when I was teaching, but I found that even for myself, I would struggle. And one of the reasons I think that is, is it's just very complex, right? And to a certain extent, you know, financial services is always going to be something of a complex industry. But I also think over time, we've maybe made it a little more complex than it needs to be, right? I saw a statistic that said, um, you know, in 1980, the standard credit card agreement from a big bank was about 700 words long, which is about one page of text. Today, it's 30 pages of very dense text, right? And some of that's probably necessary, but a lot of that complexity could probably be stripped out to the benefit of customers. And so when we think about, you know, financial literacy in the industry, and people ask me about it, the thing I always encourage is, you know, in addition to getting out in the classroom and actually trying to teach this stuff, because it's a really valuable experience, I would also encourage you in your day-to-day jobs to do what you can to reduce the amount of complexity in our industry. Because if you do, it will have a compounding positive effect for people who are trying to learn this stuff and trying to get an on-ramp into our credit system, which is, I think, a goal that we all share. So you're um, based in Montana, 
which has the motto Oro y Plata, uh, or gold and silver for non-Spanish listeners. Um, when, when I think about, you know, the, the, the valley, so I'm, I'm here in San Francisco and Theo's out in DC, um, I think about the coast and I think about the way that sometimes businesses make decisions. And when we're talking about banking and payments and we're talking about sort of these large towers and people that are so removed from sitting in a classroom teaching people about money, which I think is a great idea for every executive, is that there's so much to learn from every market and in, in not just payments, but you know, how people spend money and how they're you know, addressing budgets and how they're changing their habits. Just in the US alone, we have so many markets that seem to you know, not be talked about. So what, what have you, you know, learned about um, sort of banking and banking needs by living in places like Montana? Is, is banking missing the forest through the trees by not paying attention to more markets? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. Um, I think they are, um, because I think in a lot of ways, although you wouldn't expect it, Montana is one of those markets that I think is a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of banking and kind of where banking is going, right? Um, we're a very, very big state, and we have a relatively small population, and so we're pretty geographically dispersed. And when we were talking before about, um, you know, CRA reform and bank branches disappearing from communities, you know, that's a problem we've dealt with in Montana for generations, right? I mean, it even extends into other areas. Like, for example, I, I got my uh, degree in college for education. And in Montana, uh, we actually license teachers for primary education to teach kindergarten through eighth grade, all subjects. And that's a little bit unusual, but the reason that we do that is that Montana has a very long history of small communities with one-room schoolhouses where teachers would go and they literally would have to provide all services to everyone, right? And so we had to prepare teachers to be able to do that. And in the same way, you know, in Montana, not everyone has access to world-class banking uh, from a retail perspective. There's just not a branch in every single community. So we've actually, I think, been a very uh, sort of progressive state in terms of uh, mobile banking and online banking because the benefits have been that much more imperative to people living in Montana. The quicker that you can roll out more sophisticated digital banking capabilities, the more of those capabilities you can make available to Montanans who maybe haven't had them before. And so I think there are definitely uh, markets uh, within the U.S. and elsewhere where the characteristics of the specific region uh, provide you with opportunities to test out new features or to serve customers that might have a different set of needs. You know, I remember listening to a uh, executive from Navy Federal Credit Union, and they expressed a similar sentiment where they said, you know, our, our digital account opening process has to be world-class because we are designing it for a sailor on a submarine in the South China Sea, right? And that, that's who it needs to work for. And because they had those constraints and they had to serve those members so well, it forced them to kind of up their game across the board. And I think that communities in Montana and other places between the two coasts provide banks with a similar opportunity to kind of raise their game by serving a, quite frankly, very demanding set of customers. I, I like those stories. Um, we had recently talked with Kurt, um, who who is in Utah, and his bank's specific demographics are truck drivers. 
who travel around the country. And so in order to better service them, they had to create solutions that allow people access to their services, doesn't matter where they are, right? Because truckers, they literally drive all over the state. And it gives them different perspective of things that we take for granted, that we had no idea until we look further into how they work and how they live and what they need. And then you craft specific solutions for, for them. And it gives you, um, I'd say, a better appreciation of what it is that consumers really need versus what we think they need, which I think it's, it's a challenge that, that we always have. Um, and to wrap up the, the podcast, and, and I think we can go on and on and on and on. I am curious, it is 2020, it is a new decade. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you would like personally to see happen more in banking? Um, that you hadn't seen, more focus on the specific subject you're passionate about or different services that you think could serve as um, consumers in America better? Yeah, great question. Um, That's something I've I've been thinking a lot about lately. You know, I kind of keep coming back to this idea of complexity and um, really trying to take more ownership over that complexity and removing it from the lives of customers, right? I think generally speaking, consumers want to do the right thing. They want to head in a positive direction. Uh, They want to build wealth for the future and for their families. But a lot of times they get tripped up by complexity, some of which exists for very good reasons, some of which is somewhat self-imposed. But I think the more that we can all make ourselves the sort of mortal enemies of complexity in banking and work on stripping as much of that out and hiding that from customers, uh, the more success those customers are going to see and the stronger position we're all going to be in. Love that. So here's 2020 to reducing complexity. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. And thank you for listening in to a new episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next time.